So Money Episode 796, Tracy Matthews, jewelry designer and founder of Flourish and Thrive Academy. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Today's guest is sharing how to recover and thrive after losing everything. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. At one point, Tracy Matthews had a successful handmade jewelry business, earning over a million dollars in annual revenue. You could find her jewelry in hundreds of stores internationally. Celebrities like Halle Berry, Orlando Bloom, Kate Hudson wore her jewelry. But Tracy grew the business fast and made mistakes. And in 2009, she made the difficult decision to declare bankruptcy and close shop. Now, the story has a happy ending. Today, she is again making waves in the jewelry business. She has a thriving custom business and she's learned from all her mistakes. In fact, teaches other aspiring jewelry designers how to grow successful businesses, how to actually make money, good money, selling your designs. Her program is called Flourish and Thrive Academy. So how did Tracy pick up the pieces after her bankruptcy? How did it impact her marriage? And Honestly, how does a jewelry designer grow a business in today's crowded market? Here's Tracy Matthews. Tracy Matthews, welcome to So Money. Thanks for having me, Farnoosh. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I was interested in your story. Uh, we were connected through a mutual friend and you as a jewelry designer who has risen from the ashes of starting a business, having it just blow up, be so, so successful, then declaring bankruptcy and still starting again and now teaching other jewelry designers. Never had a guest on the show like you before, but I think we can, <laughs> we can learn a lot from you. Your determination alone is very inspiring. I want to learn so much in terms of your own financial journey. My friend, Margie Fox, shout out to Margie. She listens to this podcast, has a company called Fits and Hen. I'm obsessed with her jewelry and I'm going to keep her in mind as I ask you questions about growing the business. But first, I'm going to stop talking and just say, welcome (laughs) again. And where are you right now? What's going on in your life? Tell me a little bit about where you're calling in from and, and how business is going. Absolutely. So I am here in New York City. I'm sitting in my closet. Actually, I just moved to the Hudson Yards neighborhood <laughs> from the West Village where I've lived for lived before that. That's for a difference. A long, long time. It is different. It's very skyscrapery here, but um, it's nice because there's space and high ceilings and it's a different vibe, but I'm enjoying the change. So it's good. And since I moved into this new place, we were chatting about this before. I have to record my podcast and interviews in my closet because the ceilings are high and it echoes otherwise. So that's Well, fun. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. I'll give good sound quality to you guys. Um, anyway, so what's going on in my life? You know, I'm really excited because we just finished our live event here in New York City at the end of September. And it was our fourth annual Flourish and Thrive Live. And it's an event specifically designed for uh, independent jewelry brands who are excited to really uh, grow their businesses. Um, we really focus on independent jewelry brands who are who want to launch, grow, or scale their business. So we help them kind of at any level where they're at. 
Um, so it's always great. You know, one of our core values at Flourish and Thrive Academy is community over competition. And that really started because of uh, a pain point that I had back in the 90s when I was starting my business that, you know, I had a lot of questions and there was no one to answer. And my friends who were jewelers or designers didn't want to share their trade secrets. And so we're kind of busting that myth and trying to open up the conversation to um, just kind of help people like know that uh, when we share it, we don't lose our competitive edge. It actually helps everyone grow. Rising tide lifts all boats. Exactly. That's sort of what we're what we're all about over here. And just to give listeners the background, uh, you um, talked about the 90s and your first uh, sort of foray into the jewelry business. Your designs were sold in over 350 stores internationally. Halle Berry and Kate Hudson were were big fans. You've been on all you were on all the TV shows, Today Show, and you were bringing in about a million plus in revenue a year. Mm-hmm. But then you declared bankruptcy. So tell me about that. Like what was what happened between making a million in revenue and then declaring bankruptcy in I think it was around 2009 when that happened. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was, it's been a fun ride. Um, but it's definitely been a ride. Fun now, you you call it, maybe not in the moment. (laughs) It wasn't in the moment. I mean, the experience in hindsight, you know, I really look, it was like the worst moment in my life, but I look at this as like, you know, it's such a learning experience that it was awesome. So yeah, I mean, it's funny because Revlon just commissioned me, I think last year, maybe the year before to design another piece for Hallie. Hallie's bought my jewelry before for her 20 years at Revlon. So that was an exciting little milestone for me. Congrats. Um, but yeah, thanks. Um, so I had my business for about 11 years and worked really hard to grow. It. And like I said, you know, I kind of built the, I didn't go to business school or anything like that, which I don't necessarily think is important for someone starting a jewelry business. But I, what I do think is important is to have the right foundation in place. And there was nothing really like what we teach now at Flourish and Thrive to do that back then. So I was just really figuring it out based on uh, the code of trial and error. Um, And I'm really good at putting myself out there and getting sales. And I think, uh, you know, the main thing that really contributed to the bankruptcy was that the business was growing so much. Um, In 2007 and eight, I had contracted some really big orders, um, like a $100,000 order with Anthropology. I landed a contract with QVC. And, uh, a bunch of other um, big accounts, like kind of all were booking at once, which was great. And when that happens, you know, you end up having some cash flow issues in a product-based business. And so we started looking for alternative sources of financing and we worked with a factor. Um, and a factor, for those of you who don't know, is someone who basically finances your receivables. So if you ship an order, you don't have to wait to get paid uh, the 30, 60 or 90 days from the vendor, you, they will give you the money in advance, um, after the order is shipped. So we were doing that for a while and everything was great. And then things started, the things started changing in 2008, as we all was the know recession? now, was that, was that what it was? It was yeah. companies couldn't pay you back. Yeah. So basically like all these companies just started filing for bankruptcy. Some of them that I'd been working with for years and others that were new, sales who basically just took like 50,000 orders, dollar orders, and then didn't pay me back. And so that just creates a cash flow crumble. And, uh, it was really rough. I, I tell, I've told this before, but in October of 20, uh, 2007, I shipped $150,000 that month in October of 
2008, I shipped $10,000 in order orders. If that kind of, that was like usually like one of the best months of the year, Hmm. it just had rapidly declined. And it, it was, um, devastating when you have a company and employees and people that you're paying every single month, you, you need a required amount of money coming into the business to actually make your expenses. So, so this is maybe a silly question that maybe you learn on the first day of getting an MBA, but I didn't get my MBA, but (laughs) there are a lot of businesses like yours where like you just described, you have vendors who put in orders, batch orders, they are going to pay you in 30, 60, 90 days for you to have proper cash flow. You partner up with this, is it factor or whatever you yeah, it's a factor. Factor. Mm-hmm. So did, yeah. whether you're doing jewelry or furniture or whatever, um, shouldn't you be able to ba- pay for like an insurance that would help you in the event that these vendors don't pay up? Because that's you're very vulnerable in that situation, whether it's a recession or just something going on within that vendor's business that it collapses. Like it should, there should be some sort of um, buffer for you, but maybe not. Maybe I'm just. I, I don't, I mean, I haven't heard of anything like that. If there is something like that, I would like to know because I would share it with everyone in my audience. I mean, I think like the closest thing I'd ever heard to something like that was the factoring company because basically <laughs> the particular factor that I worked with is out of business now, but uh, basically the way it worked was that they would do all the background checks. And so they would only factor receivables that they knew would pay them. And so if it was someone who was like having trouble paying or something like that, they wouldn't advance the money and it was at your own risk. Um, I wish there was insurance. I've never heard of that, but maybe there is. And I've just have been hiding under a rock or something. (laughs) Maybe it's just wishful thinking. I mean, this is where my business acumen, uh, maybe someone (laughs) should start that in kind of insurance, you know, because I think that's a great idea it would be worth a penny if you felt like, you know, you were in this kind of a vulnerable situation. But moving on, uh, this bankruptcy did not break you. It did not. Um, yeah. So what, you know, what ended up happening is, uh, I, I hired a consultant right around this time to kind of figure out, okay, what do I do? Do I close the company? Do I try and renegotiate my debt and stay in business? I mean, it was awful because I had these long-term vendor relationships with all my suppliers who I could not pay. And it was just a terrible situation to be in. And we were getting phone calls all the time. I had to change my phone number even. And um, it was hard. I had to make this really hard decision. It took me about a year to finally decide that my passion for this type of jewelry business was gone. And I I didn't want to really dabble in the world of wholesale anymore, selling to stores that I did want to make jewelry still, but, uh, or design jewelry, maybe I should say, but in a different way. Um, it just seemed because I, my identity was so built around building this company. I mean, it had it for 11 years. It was really hard for me to see another way possible, but with like some coaching and working with this consultant and kind of, uh, taking a break for a couple months, I was able to see really clearly after a while that there are many ways to have a successful business and especially in the jewelry industry with uh, the power of the internet and alternate uh, ways of doing business. When I started my business, there the only way to really sell was to do like in-person trunk shows or to sell to stores. And the way that you got really successful was to sell to stores because they would buy at scale. Nowadays, there are many different business models. You can have an e-commerce business. You can have a business like I do now where you are designing 
planning for just for private clients. Um, you can still do the wholesale thing. You can still do the trunk show thing. You can have your own store. Like there's so many different ways to build a successful business. It just took me a while to kind of see like sort of the, the green grass on the other side. And so I took some steps to kind of rebuild and, um, I did it slowly at first. And then in my natural nature of being a fast mover, I ramped up really quickly eventually. And I just, uh, kind of had some side hustles here and there. And I just went after like working with private clients. I had designed a few engagement rings for, uh, some friends and family members and clients who'd been, um, who'd followed me for a long time. They loved it. I loved it. And it just seemed like a natural progression. And so my business evolved. It became really easy to manage with a very small team and very little overhead. There was no financial risk from uh, having inventory because I was just making things as they were going, as I was getting the orders for them. And it was awesome. I went, I went from basically being bankrupt to having one of my most profitable months in business ever to that point, I should say, um, of booking like, uh, $30,000 in profits. I think I figured out maybe with all the cost of inventory and everything I'd done, like in three months, just like maybe like a hundred and something thousand dollars in sales, which, um, for a one person business doing it on their own, I was like super stoked. And so it just, uh, worked out great. And it's been something that has been really easy to sustain and easy to attract the right people to buy that product. And now, um, now I'm doing some other stuff too, to help designers kind of really figure out where their happy place is with their jewelry business to help them build a business that is, um, sustainable, that is profitable, that they actually make money doing the business. Uh, but also that fits in line with what they want for a lifestyle. Because I think one of the biggest things that was a problem for me having a wholesale business was that I was so tied to an office and trade shows and being in one place. And I wanted to um, spend more time with my nieces and nephews who were growing up and have a life that would allow me to travel and stuff like that. So it sounds like you are going a little bit more direct to consumer this time. Yes. So, I mean, that, that was my choice because I didn't want to sell the stores anymore. Um, there's amazing stores out there. We have great partnerships at Flourish and Thrive Academy with some really amazing retailers who do pay their customers <laughs> and, or their vendors. And uh, many of the designers in our community have done, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue with them and really have great relationships. It was just a choice that I made because I wanted an easier life and an easier business. And so I could have multiple six figure income working very part time, you know, designing fine jewelry direct to consumer, but that's not everyone's choice. And you know? you're doing a lot of custom work, which is a uh, great because you can charge a premium for that. And yes. you said earlier that, you know, you really emphasize with your clients and who want to learn from you, these jewelry designers, this importance of um, tapping into the community. If you are somebody who is a little um, nervous about sharing your tricks of the trade, um, how do you get people convinced that this is actually to their benefit? Um, that it's an interesting. That's an interesting question because it was definitely a huge issue when we first started, and there are a lot of designers who still come in and worry about it. They worried about they worry about being knocked off. They worry about 
um, someone like stealing all their vendors. It's my belief that there you could basically throw a rock and hit a jewelry designer. It's really it's not that hard. There are so many. There's like probably I don't know thousands here just in New York City alone. What really makes someone stand out is their ability to innovate, their ability to put themselves out there, and their ability to continue to move forward in their business and not worry about what everyone else is doing. And so I've hopefully led by example uh, to my students that that's the way to success. It's not about a lot of people worry about what could happen and people knocking them off and spending all this time like um, stressing about what could happen instead of building their business. And my experience has been that when we can support each other, uh, we've seen this in our groups. I've seen this in the designers that we coach uh, privately. And I've seen this in my own experience is that when we can share information and help each other out, everyone wins because you may, you know, give up a resource for your favorite, you know, sustainable rose cut diamonds or something like that, or, uh, you know, your, your beads or gemstones. Um, and someone else might help you find, uh, you know, a caster in New York city, or they might give you a tip on how they did, you know, an amazing Facebook live sale where they sold $7,000 in an hour. You know, like there, I feel like that's where that, this is where it really happens. It's like when you can start to break down the walls and you can prove to them that like, you know, look, look at this case here. Lisa shared this story about how she had, um, her, 40 again birthday sale. And I'm joking because she keeps getting older, but she only does the 40, 40 again sale and how she makes like thousands of dollars in 40 minutes by, because she's trained her customers and she teaches you the exact strategy that you can do for your customers. Sharing works because your customers, you know, you don't have the same customers, you know, I think it was best said, you know, we were rewrote our signature course laying the foundation this last year. And we use this example how many customers do you really need to have a successful business? Like if you think about it for my jewelry business, I need 30 a year and hopefully at least 10 or 15 of those are people I've worked with before. So I really need, need 15 new customers a year to have a successful business. If people are buying at the price point that I want to sell to them at right. Um, in a, you know, lower price point jewelry company, maybe that's a thousand customers, new customers a year or, or 200 or 300, you know, it's really thinking about what is it, what does it really take? It's not, I think a lot of people think that they have to sell to you millions of people in order to have a successful business. But if you do your job right and you learn how to attract and connect with your customers, you learn how to convert those people and sell to them. And then you create a cycle of re-engagement and you're continually doing that on an ongoing basis anyone can have a successful business, even in the jewelry industry and sharing your secrets isn't going to make you less lose your competitive edge. It's just going to help you grow. That's really, really good advice. Just kind of do the reverse engineering of it, right? Like how many people do I need to buy into this idea? And uh, how do you get inspiration for your designs? I mean, there's clearly the, the clientele that comes to you with ideas in mind. But, you know, compare, yeah. comparing your vision now to what your jewelry vision was <laughs> in the first uh, round, has it changed? Where do you get inspiration? What are people into right now? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, it's so different when I started, you know, I was a trained metalsmith, but I started my first collection 
as a beaded jewelry designer because I was living in San Francisco and I was married and I was making my jewelry on our living room table or not the, yeah, the living room table, like where the TV, the TV room table, the only room we had (laughs) besides the bedroom. Um, and so I couldn't have like a torch or anything in there and we didn't have enough money or I didn't have enough money at the time to really set up a separate studio. So my first collection was really created because it's what I could create with the, you know, what I had at my resources. And as it evolved, you know, it just, it's really just about, was really about tapping into, um, what I think we all have is like, we all have our own individual creative, creative genius. Right. And evolving and and creating a signature style that I call my own now. And so when I'm working with clients these days, uh, you would definitely like, if you looked back to like 2000, um, six, seven, eight, nine, you would definitely see things that are reflective of what I'm doing now. If you look back to 2000, or 1998, it might look a lot different because I'm not doing beaded jewelry anymore. But the 90s are um, back in other ways. My goodness, I Penny know loafers and plaid skirts. Should have kept all my That's high school clothes. I have huge like roll ups of uh, of uh, jewelry somewhere. I should find them and pull them back out. But um, when I look back, there are lots of pearls in that collection, which is very preppy. Um, when I look now, you know, there's definitely an evolution in a signature style. And when I'm working with clients, I always like preface everything with the fact that, you know, I don't, I'm not a custom jeweler, how you might think of it. I design in my style. And if you like it, great, like let's create something together. But if uh, that's not what you're going for and you want me to copy another designer, cause that's a lot of times what people bring to you. They're trying to think cheap. Uh, that's like out of integrity. I don't believe in that. I think it's stupid. And I just say, why don't you just, when people do that, I just say, why don't you just buy this ring from the designer? Why do you want me to make it? Um, uh, or, you know, or sometimes it's like they have an idea, like I want X, Y, and Z, and then we interpret it. So it's a collaborative process, but it's definitely always in alignment with, you know, what I'm best at in like the look and feel of what I design. I'd love to transition a little bit to your personal financial yeah. life. So we've talked a lot about your business, your your bankruptcy, the successes you've had, the mm-hmm. strategies to boost revenue. How would you grade yourself when it comes to your personal finances? Well, it's been an evolution. I probably back in the day would have given me self, myself a three. Uh, I would give myself now probably a seven because it's a work in progress and I am a natural spender. Um, I spent my career working in the fashion industry and, and so... I uh, love fashion and I love looking good and I live in New York City and it's expensive to live here. And I joke around a lot that I would be like super rich if I lived somewhere else. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I choose to live here for a reason. Um, my What I really am focused on now is creating automation in my life and in my business too uh, so that I don't have to think about saving that it's automatically happening and I don't notice it. Um, I know that's something that you... you teach. I've heard you talk about it and, uh, it's the easiest way to save. But I think some of the biggest mistakes I'd made in the past was not really thinking about like, okay, like how much do I really need to put aside for taxes or how much do I need to put aside for my retirement or how much do I need to, uh, I don't have any debt anymore. And I, I, uh, try to stay away from it, but I do have to build up my credit. So I do have to use credit cards and pay them off every month. So I have to plan for that. Um, So like, I think it's, for me, it's a work in progress. What I really, after bankruptcy, what I've been working on for the past couple of years is building up a cash savings, building up, um, 
enough money to invest in, in uh, property and stuff like that and uh, building up my retirement. So it's, it's been a work in progress, but uh, honestly, I'd give myself a seven. Well, that's a bit more than double where you started out. So that's, that's a nice improvement. You've been public too on your website in, in your bio. You talk about your divorce as also being sort of this impetus for you to kind of restart, you know, your life and your husband, it sounds like was not really supportive uh, or was kind of unnecessary pressure on you to do well. Talk about that a little bit and how maybe money was a little bit of a stress point for the two of you. It sounds like he was really not supportive at the end of the day of you doing this because maybe he was skeptical of jewelry business in general. Well, he was, I don't want to say he wasn't supportive. Um, he wanted me to do it, but there was a really, he wanted me to start my business and we waited, you know, until he had a really solid job for me to start it. I mean, and I was young when I was married. So we were in our twenties. Uh, I think our household income at the time when we started was like $50,000. Like we didn't have a lot of, of income to split between two people living in San Francisco. So I had spent that previous year saving some money so, because I knew I was starting a business so that we had a little bit of a cushion. So that was helpful. But I think, you know, one of the things that I'm really passionate about right now is teaching creative thinkers and artists and designers. And I say creative thinkers because I think everyone's creative um, in their own way to use their creativity to problem solve and to make money. Back then, if I'm honest with myself, I think I was, even though I was a really good salesperson, cause I'd worked in retail, um, up until that point and to put myself through college and stuff is that I was a really good salesperson, but not a good salesperson for my own jewelry <laughs> until I was forced to be. And it was scary. I remember coming home a couple times and he was like, you know, you got to figure this out or you're going to have to go back to your job. I mean, that was like really the thing where I think, um, it became like, he was like, it's not that he wasn't supportive. It was just like reality. Like we got to figure this out. And, um, that pressure, it's good. I work really well under pressure. I can get anything done. If I feel like the, the idea of having to go back to that retail job or working for someone else was like the biggest pain point for me. So I had to figure it out. And so I just pushed myself to put myself out there and it was very uncomfortable. And then I just got comfortable with discomfort and, um, it started becoming easy. And so I think the more that I put myself out there and became vulnerable, because it feels very vulnerable when you're putting your art out in the world, uh, the easier it became to sell. And the easier it became to hear feedback from people saying no and be um, resilient to that feedback and to actually like implement changes that might help, you know, my collection development skills and sales skills or whatever it might be. And that served me really well. You know, like my first year in business, full time. I think I did 50,000 in revenue. My second year I did 150. And so it just kept like for the first couple years we were doubling and then the, the, the growth tapered off after a while. And, you know, it was like 20, 30%, which is not as hard when you're just in the six figure mark. But it, um, I think that that, you know, he was a creative, he's a creative person too. I, we've lost touch. I'm still in touch with his family, but, um, I think that, I think the most interesting part about this, the the story of uh, me and my ex-husband and our relationship and our divorce was that we're both highly creative. I think one of the things that really drove us apart was that 
I finally figured out how to make money with my creativity. And he didn't at that point in his life. And it became a wedge between the two of us. And so um, not to get into, not to throw him under the bus or anything like that. I'm sure he's doing great and thriving now, but um, it became difficult because I felt like I was so supportive of him and I was trying to push him into his creative zone of genius, which he's very creative, super smart, great writer, all that stuff. But uh, it was like the real struggle of that artist syndrome thing hitting him now. And so Mm. um, it was interesting. That's interesting. Interesting time. (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing. Um, We want to always ask guests uh, a question. Wait, let me start that over. Our sponsor is Chase Slate and it's October. So in the month of, uh, so in the spirit of that, I want to ask you, maybe you've already addressed this, but what was your scariest money moment? There was this time I was running down the street, Houston Street in Soho. It's the middle of the summer. It's blazing hot. And I had just tried to take some money out of my bank account and it kept declining. And I called my bank and they said that there was a lien on my bank account uh, because this is before I had filed for bankruptcy. I was freaking out because I had already closed my business down. I had maybe like $4,500 in my business bank account and my personal bank account was frozen So I was literally running to the bank to pull everything, every penny I had out of my bank account so that I had money to live. I mean, it was like a really terrifying moment. Um, And that was the moment that I actually, um, I was advised to wait as long as I possibly could to file for bankruptcy because of my personal circumstances. Uh, And that was the moment when I was running down the street on, on running down Houston street in Soho (laughs) to the bank that I, (laughs) decided it's time to engage a lawyer. <laughs> Figure this out. Yeah. It was nuts. What year was that? 2009? That was uh, 2009. I closed my business in 2009. I think I, the bankruptcy was finalized in 2011. So that's probably 2010 when that happened. Well, I think a lot of people were running to the bank for a lot of different reasons <laughs> during that time. So I'd love to do some so many fill in the blanks. This is when I start off a sentence and you finish it. Awesome. Okay. So if I won the lottery tomorrow, $100 million, the first thing I would do is? I would set up a college or savings funds for my 19 nieces and nephews. 19? Yeah, it's insane. I'm one of eight kids. It's not normal. <laughs> so every person's averaging two to three kids in your family. Two to three. My older sister has quite a few. And then my younger siblings don't have kids yet. Are you the um, cool the aunt? Youngest, I am the coolest aunt ever. The coolest. I have a sister who lives in Hoboken and she has twins and they're awesome because they're close by. The rest of my family's on the West Coast. So it's so fun. I love it. So great. <laughs> Well, you're going to need all that lottery money to send them to college. That's for sure. I am. <laughs> you can buy yourself a sandwich at the end of it, maybe. I know. <laughs> the one thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? My cleaning lady. Oh, my God. It's the best thing ever. I work from home. And uh, I think that I've always I thought for many years about leveraging time, my time per hour. And that investment is the best investment I I ever make in myself. I pay for her to come once a week. She cleans up my place. It gives me peace and helps me be more productive so that I can do my job better. One thing I like to splurge on, guilt-free, it's big money, but I do it, is? Vacations. 
so important to me. I love um, to travel. And when I started this new business and when I launched Flourish and Thrive Academy, my number one value was uh, to be able to work remotely or my number one criteria maybe is a better way to put it. And because I wanted to be able to live, like move to California for a little bit and be with my family or, you know, work in Europe for a month or just not work in Europe for a month or go to India, like whatever that, that was the key. So travel for sure. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is, Oh, this is good. I come from a family of spenders. Um, okay. This is going to be like a little bit emotional, but money doesn't buy you love. Why do you say that? I say that because I think that, um, it was, you know, I have this, uh, amazing aunt and, uh, you know, if I think about the relationships with my parents and our relationship with money, there was like always this, uh, sort of like interplay between like, I don't know how to explain it between like what was valued and important and like how much, like what, how much money was spent. You know, we grew up in a, um, upper middle class family and we never had want for anything, but there was always this like struggle around money. And I remember, uh, my parents going through a hard time when they were getting divorced. And to me, there was this weird connection between that love thing because, uh, my dad stopped paying for my school. Uh, I mean, I know now as an adult that there was a reason for that, but, um, to me, it felt like he didn't love me enough to, to finish paying for my college education and I had to leave and put myself through school and all that stuff, which in hindsight was like great for me because I learned a lot about resilience and paving my own way. And it's really set the path for me being a hard worker these days, but it was tough. And I have this amazing aunt, uh, who, uh, God bless her. Um, she's gotten a lot better because we've talked to her about this a lot, but she would just like, I think that she thinks that, uh, the way to someone's heart is by, you know, buying things for them or taking them on trips when it's really just the time, you know, to spend with someone. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I think uh, it takes a lot of wisdom and sometimes distance to say things like, I'm thankful that my dad didn't, you know, finish paying for my college education. That's uh, a terrible thing to go through. But surely resilience building. I think also to your point about, you know, your aunt and her spending money to show her love. I I feel like that's so many people in everyone's families. And it's often people from an older generation. It is. Yeah. And and I'm just like, Peggy, we just want to spend time with you. That's it. (laughs) Yeah, really. It's like, I sort of feel like it's kind of what grandparents do sometimes with their grandchildren, you know. Um, But you're right. Just telling them what a relief that I don't have to spend more money. I can just spend my time, you know. (laughs) Exactly. Like you're doing that. I mean, I was always great. Don't get me wrong. Like we had a blast, but it's like, (laughs) I mean, don't stop buying her things or me things, but you can can dial it down a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This has been so much fun. Last but not least, I'm Tracy Matthews. I'm so money because. Because I am helping uh, creative thinkers and artists uh, make money doing what they love the most. And they should be making money doing what they love the most. Yes. Sustaining, creating sustainability in, in your yes. life as a creative thinker and artist. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Congratulations on hashtag winning. 
<laughs> so much and I appreciate you coming on and sharing us all your uh, behind the scenes. Really brave. Thank you. Furnish, this was awesome. Thanks for having me. To learn more about Tracy, head over to flourishthriveacademy.com. She's on Instagram at flourish underscore thrive. I'm on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi. If you've got a money question, send it to me there. I try to answer quickly. So if you have a question and you're on a time crunch, that's the best place to find me. Otherwise, you know, every Friday I answer your money questions on Ask Farnoosh. Go to somoneypodcast.com where you have all the assets from this podcast, including the audio and the transcript. And there, click on Ask Farnoosh and send me your question or leave a voicemail. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. Money.